Welcome to Now Nostalgia, your weekly look at what's going on now in pop culture. I'm your host, Patrick Sheehan, along with my co-host, Dave Martinson. Pat, how's it going today, sir? You know, it's going pretty well. We've had a uh, pretty successful two podcasts so far. I want to thank all of our loyal fans. Yeah, keep listening. And if you're new, welcome. Welcome. Tell a friend to tell a friend if you're a fan. That would be really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Follow us on Twitter at NowStalgiaPod. And if you do have a friend that might like to hear us have them follow us share the podcast with them share it on facebook share it on twitter soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod and we are in the works still for stitcher and itunes the applications have been sent so it's out of our hands so by next week we'll be on there as well so you'll be able to get the show wherever you please yeah and send us feedback too we want to make this the most enjoyable listening experience we can for you our listeners so thank you again but we have a couple of great topics today we're going to talk some tv later on touching on mr robot walking dead and house of cards along with some other shows but why don't we start today with Maybe the biggest surprise of the weekend, King Kendrick. Yeah, the return. With Untitled Unmastered. Yeah, absolutely. Kendrick, seemingly out of the blue, dropped a eight-track EP album, B-side collection. Yeah, he. I mean, basically the way he described it was... It's on Spotify. Um, LeBron. First of all, shouts to LeBron for pulling this together. The king. After, One king to another. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, after Kendrick's awesome Grammy performance was like... You need to release... You know, Braun tweeted it, at, at King James, you can go check, it's out on there. And Kendrick and, and his producer listened, and they, they dropped a couple of uh, unfinished songs from Pimp Butterfly. Yeah, so it's eight tracks, and that, the project's called Untitled, Unmastered, it's a blank olive green album artwork and as the title suggests it's all unmastered just raw raw cuts some of the songs yeah, and rather abruptly yeah and it's clearly by the sound and the subject matter it's songs that were recorded during the Tim Butterfly sessions and you could see the dates on the track list so you know when they were made or started so it's really interesting that he released them and I mean some people were like oh yeah thanks LeBron I mean I don't really know how much of this was uh LeBron's doing TDE, which is Kendrick's, you know, first label. They're very calculated in how they manage their artists, specifically Kendrick, of course. But LeBron did tweet at Kendrick and talk, the head of Talk Dog, Anthony, and they listened. They put it out on Spotify. It's free to listen. Definitely check it out because it's more of the same for current Kendrick, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it still has that jazzy vibe. I think the interesting thing that kind of stood out to me with only one or two listens in was that it really had this brooding, but like, smooth sound to it which i think is very obviously reminiscent of tip a butterfly but it almost sounds like the very beginning is you know it's it starts off this guy is basically like dirty talking to this woman and then oh, yeah. <laughs> it starts with kendrick having these weird almost uh, scary images basically it, it moves in the same direction where it sounds very brooding but then it's kind of breaks near the end and right. i think the song that really is standing out to people is untitled three it actually premiered that on stephen colbert Right, Stephen Colbert, and it, it wasn't the, exactly the way it was on the album, but right. it got a lot of good response when he did play it on Colbert. Yeah, and I think the cool the cool thing to take away from Untitled Unmastered is that because all the songs are in the raw form, it's kind of removing the safety net of a lot of contemporary music, which is overproduced and edited to make it sound the way it's everyone wants it to sound. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually good for this because these songs are, by their nature, Lucy's or outtakes from Tim Butterfly Sessions. 
mastering these and putting them out would kind of be redundant. I think by removing the safety net, you're kind of getting the different vibe from that. And very similar to the live version of the song I, mm-hmm. which is on to a Butterfly's album edition. It's like a live version, which is very different yeah. from the single version, which was a studio recording. So mm-hmm. it's kind of it's the first thing I really thought of, but I think it's good that he release them raw it's it's different it's interesting looking at kind of the subject matter he talks about i mean obviously like we've talked about this is something that basically came out of the pimp butterfly sessions so a lot of the subject matter is similar right and i think untitled three like we talked about there's a line on there that really everybody's talking about where he, he talks about the white man and what gives them joy and he says taking some of mine and then he also says selling me just for 10.99 mm-hmm. um and kind of going off like that idea, Untitled Unmastered, obviously they're basically saying this is just raw cuts, right. but also like that idea of unmastered. I mean, that's something he's been playing around with how, yeah, as a, as a black, yeah. black person, it's been this idea that he's been controlled by these white producers, white CEOs of these record labels, and this is a way that he's putting himself out there really as the artist he is. Right. Anthony Fantano, music reviewer, had a really good quote in regards to this project. He said Kendrick Lamar has the highest batting average of all rappers right now. I mean, just look at look at his uh, track record. You have Section 80, Good Kid, Mad City, Pimp mm-hmm. Butterfly, and now this, Untitled and Mastered. And he really hasn't made any mistakes or released anything bad in over three years, four years now. It's pretty crazy, right? Um, oh, yeah. that's actually more than that. Tw- uh, five years. Section 80 was 2011. 2010, yeah. Good Game Mad City 2012, so it's been a while. At the top of his game. Absolutely, and he's been at the top since he basically came out on the scene, which is the craziest right. part. I, it was interesting that he dropped this unexpected. I mean, we, we've been seeing a lot more of that recently, but, you know, like to, Beyonce. And, Beyonce dropping um, albums in the middle of the night, dropping a, that single. Uh, or, or even, I think, more common is people announcing a, a release date that's right around the corner, right. sometimes with, like, no single, mm-hmm. single uh, support. J. Cole did that, 2014 Force Less Drive. Kanye even did that. He announced uh, what was formerly called Swish. Right. Only, it was only like six weeks before the, the date. Well, the, the, yeah. first, the first date anyway. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you want to know our thoughts on the life of Pablo, check out our last episode at soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. And let us know what you think, because that album is amazing. <laughs> that album is amazing. And not to actually speak too much about Pablo, but I thought it was interesting that he released this basically two weeks after the Life of Pablo dropped. I want to say it's a really strong contrast to the Life of Pablo. I mean, we talked about how awesome oh, the producing is yeah. on the Life of Pablo, and it's almost like, at parts, a perfect sounding record, but also sounds really disjointed, kind of like this mm-hmm. record does as well. And I thought, kind of looking at, especially Untitled Number 7, that's basically a song that's in like three or four different parts, and it the ending of it even is basically him joking around, singing, trying to make everybody in the studio laugh, almost it sounds like. And it actually, I think, calls back to Untitled Number 3 in a way, but it, it really reminded me almost of Father Stretch My Hands Parts 1 and 2 because oh, people right. said that those sound yeah. really disjointed at parts, like the interpolations really don't make sense, but it's a really beautiful song still. Yeah, it's a final thought on this. It's, it's not just Kendrick, too. He's got a lot of the usual suspects you would expect from Kendrick Lamar nowadays, obviously J Rock and Absol from Black Hippie are there, and then frequent collaborators like Terrence Martin, Thundercat, Lal, people he's been working with, SZA also from TD, and then CeeLo Green is probably the most yeah. high profile. Yeah, CeeLo. Well, when I heard him, I was like CeeLo. I was really pumped. I don't know why. Going back to the, those Gnarls Barkley days. So. Well, yeah, I was gonna say CeeLo's. He's been a sellout for a while now with the voice. 
Yeah. When was, when was the last time we released music? The uh, Fu album. It must be. I mean, that I, was that. Wow, that was like twenty. I was a freshman. And he hasn't even been. On, he hasn't <laughs> even been on the Voice in a while. I don't. Think. Oh, he hasn't. I don't think nah, he's a coach I mean, anymore. Wow. Why don't we move on though to something else that kind of dropped end of last week? The Ghostbusters three trailer. Right. So it's not actually called Ghostbusters three. They say it's not related, but part of the reason a lot of people have problems with this trailer is because there's a lot of nods and hints or they're showing you things from the other Ghostbusters movie. To start it off, this first trailer, which is about 20 million views on YouTube already, has 357,000 dislikes. They actually were, uh, I was reading an article about that and they kind of did the statistics like comparing the ratio right. and they had maybe the lowest ratio of likes to, to dislikes saying that uh, out of, uh, not ever, but out of the major movies coming out. Okay. Um, right now, so like, yeah, I believe it. like Superman versus Batman has like, I don't know, on this scale had like 15 point something. They had 0. 0.4 at the time I looked at this. Wow. I mean, that was when they was only at 200 dislikes. So w- what do you make of all those dislikes though, Dave? Everyone who's shared a comment on this Ghostbusters trailer says that A, it's just not a good trailer because you watch this trailer and the first thing you're going to think is, wow, this looks a lot like pixels, mm-hmm. the way it's shot. And that's just the very, like, the flat comedy. It's, like, classic, like, flat comedy lighting. Right. Where they just, they don't only show you anything. They just want you to look at the funny person, the mm-hmm. actors, right? Right. It doesn't look that great. And pixels look just like this. It looked terrible. Last Hangover looked a lot like this. Mm-hmm. Looked terrible. Now, this is being directed by Paul Feig, who made Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. his best movie. He also made Spy recently with Melissa McCarthy. So the four mm-hmm. Ghostbusters are Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones, and Kate McKinnon of SNL fame, and then Melissa McCarthy. Right. So you watch this trailer, and it's a straight-up comedy. And Ghostbusters 1, which is like a seminal movie, was not a straight-up comedy. It was not. It was like a disaster movie, which had funny, which had funny moments. It was in the same tone of like Men in Black or recently Kingsman. Mm-hmm. Those are movies that function as real movies and also happen to be funny. They're not just comedies. They actually are real movies. Ghostbusters just seems like a straight-up comedy, and when you have a bad trailer like this, you, you reveal your jokes, it's just not going to go over that well. So this is getting a lot of hate, and maybe the next trailer does a little better, but right now it's really bad. And unfortunately, if you have a real criticism of this movie, like many people that have any opinion of film, they're going to have bad thoughts about this, you're getting lumped in with all the, all the misogyny that unfortunately you're seeing in the YouTube comments. Absolutely. That's actually what I was going to touch on, is that there is theory going around that all the dislikes actually come from people being upset that the Ghostbusters this time are women. All women, and Leslie Jones is lesbian as well. Right. So, I mean, everyone's saying that that's the problem. That's why it's bad. That's not a problem. Having an all-female cast is awesome. Yeah, I agree. You're not executing the movie. The tone looks terrible. And I think one of the great points that you made was that it actually looks, and they're actually stealing parts from other movies, especially the original Ghostbusters. I mean, even the casting in and of itself is almost exactly the same as the original Ghostbusters, where the three white people are learned, educated people, professors, higher right. education, and then Leslie Jones is playing this MTA worker. And she yeah, she this, spoke out about that. The sassy, street-smart black person. Exactly. Just the same way that Ernie Hudson played that in the original Ghostbusters. I, I can understand people making, you know, saying... Why does she have to be the uneducated, lowly MTA worker? Right. And she actually spoke out against that, basically saying that she rejects that stereotype, which is 
you know, I, I, I agree with her. And her point is basically a professor of science can make less money than an MTA worker on average. Yeah. I can't judge that until I actually see the movie and exactly. hear her lines. If she's written like a straight-up stereotypical black person, then there's no defending it. I wouldn't expect that from Leslie Jones. From everything I've seen on SNL, I don't right. think she would play into that. But I do agree that the idea that they are taking so much... I mean, they even had a Tommy Boy line in the trailer when right. uh, Melissa McCarthy gets slapped by Leslie Jones and she says... Which was terrible. Oh, yeah. Absolutely terrible. So... There's no risks in this movie. Oh, yeah. All-female cast. That No, that, that wasn't the risk. Even look at the, the movie looks super cookie-cutter, and unfortunately it's at the expense of... A beloved cult film. I agree. And even the casting choices. I mean, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, people you know they are going to draw. A, yeah. Well, they're favorites of Paul Feig anyway. Right, exactly. But then Kay McKinnon, I, I, I like. Leslie Jones might be the only choice I think is a little bit edgier. She's a little bit more of an edgier comic than I would say any of those three are. Right. But from the first trailer, it's not looking like this is going to be a promising movie. I mean, we'll see. I really want to see the next trailer to see how it does. You can bet every dollar you own that they are going to cut the next trailer a lot better than they did this one. There's not a not lot, lot to go off of right now, except... Why don't we move to a movie that I think we're both pretty excited for? 10 right. Cloverfield Lane. I think the coolest thing about this, speaking of ghost album releases, is this is essentially a ghost movie. We just found out about the trailer, what was it, January? Yeah, January. And then we have a release in early March. Early March, yes, coming out this Friday. So that's going to be March 11th. It's starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, John Goodman, and John Gallagher Jr. The basic premise that we have so far is that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is in a car accident. John Goodman is a survivalist. Like a doomsday prepper type mold. And he he apparently saves her from this car crash, has her in his basement, and is saying to her um, that something has made the Earth's surface uninhabitable, Ooh. and she doesn't know if she should believe him or not. And right, she, right, because he's just telling her, you can't go outside, you have to trust me, stay in this building. Right. And that's kind of where the conflict comes from. I'm not sure how John Gallagher Jr. is going to fit into this. John Gallagher of the newsroom, of course. Shout out Jim Harper. And this is also the directorial debut of Dan Trachenberg. And obviously, J.J. Abrams, he's not listed as a producer, but his fingerprints are all over this. He, he he's been made, talking about the premise, so he obviously knows what's up. J.J. said that this isn't going to be a sequel to 2008 Cloverfield, right. but it's a direct blood relative. Interesting. So what, do you, what are you expecting from this film? Well, see, that's why I like, I'm so intrigued, because unlike a Ghostbusters trailer that people just hated, or the first Batman vs. Superman trailer, which gave a lot away, we don't know really anything about this movie. And all we really knew when we first saw the trailer was that it comes out in two months. Mm -hmm. And that's just immediately intriguing to people. So in terms of what I'm expecting, I'm hoping this is cult hit and it's really cool. Similar to the first Cloverfield. Right. Or it could be like a a hard seven. You know, it could be good but not amazing. Get a little overhyped because you were just intrigued by the unknown. So I don't really know. But I like John Goodman and John Gallagher, so I have high hopes. And I actually thought the... 2008 Cloverfield was really cool. A lot of people hated the shaky cam. That was back. That was like shaky cam's heyday, I think. Right. But it wasn't executed as well as you can do it nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was a cool movie. I, I thought Cloverfield was really good. I actually think T.J. Miller's in it. Actually, he is. From Deadpool and yes. Silicon Valley. Yeah. No, T.J. Miller actually was probably my favorite character in the movie just because he was the comic relief in that. Right. Uh, I thought Cloverfield the first one was pretty well. I mean, it grossed 150 million dollars, right. and it only had a budget of 25 million. It was a hit by by any measure. Yeah, definitely. So I think the expectations of this for for myself, I'm expecting it to be a thriller. I'm expecting it to hold my interest the whole time. Right. I don't know if it's going to be good per se. 
when I think of horror movies, I guess I'm not the biggest fan of them. So it, it takes a lot for me to really say that it was executed well or it's a good movie. But I think that Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane, sorry. I think it will be, at least be intriguing. Yeah. That's all I need to do for me. Exactly. But I think we've done enough on, on some quick hit thoughts, so I want to move on to some TV talk. I think we're going to start with kind of going back a little bit to Fargo Season 2. Yes. Fargo, I think, is the best show on TV. Wow. That's yeah. A, that's a strong statement. Yeah. Season 1 of Fargo came out in the fall of 2013. was really good, really tight-knit, 10-episode miniseries show about crime in small town, Fargo and the surrounding area. Season 2 basically upped that Annie, went back in time a little bit. So it's loosely connected to Season 1, but only really just a character connection in some mm-hmm. similar settings. Right. It's not really, you really do not need to watch one before the other, although I would recommend you do. Mm-hmm. Season 2, though, it is up the Annie. Great ensemble cast, a better and bigger ensemble cast than the first season, which I didn't think was possible. Right. Because Season 1 has Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman and Bob Odenkirk from Better Call Saul. Yeah. And then Season 2, we have Kirsten Dunst. Rising star Jesse Plemons. Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson. Probably the breakout star of the season was Woodbine. Yes. Bokeem Woodbine, who played Mike Mike Milligan. Yeah, yeah, he was um, great. Yeah, I think he was really the, the person that stood out. But like you said, the ensemble cast of the second season was fantastic. And the second season was better than the first season. I, I thought the second season was pretty much a perfect yeah. season of television. That, that's why I say that. I, I'm not, that's not an original thought by me. It's essentially perfect TV. Right. There's very few, if any, problems with Fargo Season 2. It's that good. It's written absolutely superbly. It's shot mm-hmm. excellently. And Bokeen would buy like a breakout star that immediately grabs your attention whenever he's on screen. And it's really that's really refreshing because he's not an actor you know. Right. And the showrunner, Noah Hawley, who's on the Andy Greenwald podcast uh, when the second season started to air last year, basically said that when he when the show was greenlit, they came to him and said, we need you to make a, Co- a Coen Brothers movie without being able to use any of their intellectual property. Right, so- <laughs> right, because it's based off of, obviously, Fargo from 1996 by the Coen Brothers, right. the breakout movie. And initially, when the idea of a Fargo miniseries was thrown out, everyone's like, oh, everyone, they ran out of ideas again. Now we're adapting Fargo into TV. What a terrible idea. Right. And all you're really doing is thinking of, the plot of Fargo, going back to the Fargo area and doing a better story because you can yeah. span it out over 10 episodes. Absolutely. And I think going back in time, you know, after alluding to what the Sioux Falls massacre or, or however right. Molly. Molly's dad called it in season one, going back to that, that small little mention but making a whole story right. out of that. And you knew it was really happening. You right. knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And it still was really really done really well. Oh, it wasn't like spoiled or anything, even though you knew it was going to come at some point. Right. I think the only part about it that I was a little bit turned off by was the whole bit with aliens. Uh, I thought that that was kind of a strange thing to add, and maybe I just mi- maybe missed the mark on me. Barely in there, too. It was, what, the first or second episode and then the last episode? I think they, they showed it in the first and second episode briefly. Yeah. And that, then... That was weird. It played a major role, because it basically saved the character's life in the last episode right I, that was the only part i thought was a little bit odd but overall obviously a great show i, I have nothing that can really knock this show this show honestly out. glowing recommendation it's season one and two that's only 20 episodes and mm-hmm. it'll hook you by the first episode absolutely it's that good so really check it out this is a show you should make time for now i think we're going to move to what i think is the best show on tv mr robot yeah i i, I flipped back and forth mr robot was my best show until i saw fargo season two i mean mr robot it, i think the the lazy comparison is fight club 
because you know you're super lazy yeah, but i understand absolutely. why people do it i think it's also fair unreliable like, narrator yeah exactly unreliable narrator so basically the way that christian slater's character mr robot in the show comes about is you don't know who he really is right. and in in a sense you find out by the end of season one but we're still kind of figuring out what he really is in in present time and season two is going to be premiering sometime in june or july is everybody's best guess right now they just started filming it yep actually as of today right. <laughs> <laughs> i think the really interesting thing about this show and something we'll touch on with better call Saul, is that this was a show that really became more than the original show creator probably thought it was going to be in, in the zeitgeist and now they're able to kind of pull parts of it out that they maybe weren't thinking they were going to be able to when they originally greenlit the show. So it's going to be a much richer, a much deeper view of the characters, and that's what I'm really excited for, to see where like the background on characters like Elliot and Mr. Robot go. Right. Yeah, so if you don't know, Mr. Robot is a show about the main character's name is Elliot, played by Remy Malek, who was Golden Globe nominated for the role, and he will have a nomination for the Emmys this fall. You can bet on that. But yeah, Elliot is a hacker by night, works for a cybersecurity right. firm by day. Mm-hmm. And you can get where that's going. But the show is really smartly done. And because we, what we mentioned, unreliable narrator, that is Elliot, and the Fight Club-esque comparisons, the showrunner and director and writer, Sam Esmiel, he did everything by himself. This was his baby, his idea. And it was initially, very initially, it was a movie idea. Mm-hmm. And he saw it was better for TV. But the way this happened last summer is the show came out on USA, yeah. a network that people don't really think of for top TV. What was yeah. their best show before? The suits? People kind of yeah, like Suits? probably Suits. And I mean, Burn Notice got a lot of play, but... I yeah, don't know. but not like Critical Darlings. No. And then everyone's like, Intrigued, got some good, really reviews, but I, I, I swear, no one really started watching this until almost halfway through, and everyone's like, oh wait, this show is fantastic this is can't miss TV, just like that. Right. And probably, the fact that it was on USA probably heard it initially, but... Everyone got on board, and I think last fall was really where people were doing their catch-up, and Mm -hmm. now it's one of the most anticipated shows for this year, because we're going to get season two this summer, right off the bat. Fargo, we're not getting until next year in the fall, so it'll be fun time off. Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of directions they can go with this show. I mean, the the acting on this show is phenomenal. Christian Slater won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Rami Malik has been incredible in this show, but so has... Martin Walston. Tyrell Wellick. Tyrell Wellick. Yeah, who is Tyrell? That's my top question. Well, not only that, but... What, so many questions. Number one, who is Tyrell? But number two, how is White Rose going to play into this? Because if you... Oh, good point, yeah. I, I mean, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen the, the, the whole season. It. Don't spoil it. But basically, a very main character, if you watch throughout the end of the last episode, kind of shows up, and you don't even know really how he's going to play into everything, but B.B. Wong from Law & Order SVU plays a pretty crucial character, it seems, at, at this point of moving forward. So yeah. there, there's a lot of, of questions, but I think something that actually Fargo, I wanted to mention with Fargo and Mr. Robot both shares, they have an awesome soundtrack. Mm, um, yeah. So Fargo Season 2 really brings in that, that 70s, because it's based in 1979, that 70s, early 80s vibe. And then Mr. Robot really pulls from a bunch of different genres. I mean, they, they range from uh, most deaf to the Alabama Shakes. Yeah. Um, and then to <laughs> M83 within their soundtrack last season. So definitely a great show to look for. But why don't we... It's also only 10 episodes like Fargo. Right. So it's... Nowadays, I feel like the best shows are 10 to 13 episodes. Absolutely. It's quality over quantity nowadays with TV. Just so, tell your story, write it really well. 
get in now before it's 20, 30 episodes deep and yeah. you feel like you can't catch up, kind of like the Americans. Right, um, yeah. That's a, yeah, the Americans. I start, I watched the first two episodes of the Americans back when they premiered, and I never watched it again. <laughs> and all I know is how fantastic it is. I keep saying I should go back to it. And it's on Amazon Prime. It's just overwhelming. Why don't we move on to House of Cards, though? Yeah, so House of Cards just premiered on Netflix season last four. Friday. Season 4. 13 episodes, all available on Netflix, as their model always goes. And I know some people that have already finished it. I would say this is the show where binge-watching became a national thing. People know what it means, because this is one of, one of the first shows people really binge-watched, because it was so that, accessible. That or Breaking Bad, I would say. P- people did binge Breaking Bad as it went to Netflix. Yeah, to catch up. To catch up, mm-hmm. whether, whether they were a season back or a few seasons back, just to get ready for the end. Right. But House of Cards was that show where the whole thing was available right away for the first time, and people really got on board by season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone was starting to watch it, and then when season two came out, that's where you know everything went off, and then it became a huge thing. Season one kind of got released to well received, but not super popular yet, and then it developed into this by like, juggernaut it is now. We're not saying it should be a juggernaut, but we'll get to that. Yeah, well, I think the the thing about season one of House of Cards, I mean, it was directed by David Fincher. First episode was anyway. The first episode, and it, and just the way it was shot, it was beautiful. It still always looks like Fincher, which is cool. Yeah, even though he's not. He's only in a few episodes. Absolutely. I mean, the opening sequence, I think it's maybe one of the few opening sequences I find myself actually watching because it is so beautifully shot and it has like the dark and the light parts Mm -hmm. of it. So David Fincher directed the first episode. That got a lot of buzz on it. It had a pretty good season. Basically, Frank Underwood is this sociopath. Congressman in the first season rises to power. Yeah, he was the whip. The so he has a very important role. And I think the reason House of Cards and Tree People, and spoilers, you had your time to watch the show. Right. I'm not going to spoil Fargo Mr. Robot for you because I still want you to be fans. House of Cards got enough fans. If you don't know what happens, that's, that's your problem. Yeah, so he basically goes from whip and he finagles himself in the most corrupt politician way possible, what everyone always thinks of, and gets himself to be vice president and then later president. Right. And Kevin Spacey plays Frank Underwood. Robin Wright plays his wife, Claire, Claire Underwood. And then the, there's a bunch of other characters that last throughout all the seasons. Some die off. Some are sent to jail. Breakout star of season one was Corey Stoll. Who plays Peter Russo. Peter Russo. And you'll remember him. He was the villain in Ant-Man, Ant-Man. as well. Right. And he was in Black Mask. So he, he was really good as well. Kate Mara also broke out. Mm-hmm. Broke out at like... Yeah, it's funny. Stoll and Mar, they both had their breakout roles when they were like in their mid thirties. Yeah, it, it's interesting. She was Zoe Barnes, of course. She was really fantastic. Yeah, and she played. She was in The Martian recently. So, yeah. so season four. We're just gonna go over the first episode. We'll touch on some of the episodes as as we make our way through it. We don't want to spoil too much for everybody as we go along. So. Spoilers for season three. Right. Don't. I mean, if. If you haven't watched season one by now, don't go back and watch House of Cards. That would be my recommendation. I don't think it's a very good show. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I'm not as down on it as Pat is. I think the show is, it's shot so well that people assume it's really good still. But to your credit, what you've been saying for a while now, the plot is a little over the top now. A little convoluted. And it doesn't always seem that way because they're still sticking to the political election cycle so the plot mm-hmm. seems structured it's right. kind of like how game of thrones you know they're following a narrative mm-hmm. that's pre-established right. so that's my thing about house cards like, i always know what they're getting to but i guess the way they get there sometimes is too much for people yeah and i think i mean my my major criticism with, with house of cards is that you come into house of cards and you're already following these major players who are on the biggest stage possible so you're coming into these people who have immense amounts of power and influence on the country right 
and they're playing with other people who have mass amounts of influence and cult and and power within the biggest stage of the country and somehow these two people Frank Underwood and Claire Underwood become the center of everything I mean it makes sense once he becomes vice president president Yes, yes and no. Because at the same time, like think about today's politics. So Obama, he's the center of everything. Obviously, he, he's in, he's mentioned in everything. Is he going to try to pass this bill? What will his move be? Right. But there's always other factions of people. I mean, right. you hear about Mitch McConnell. You hear about Paul Ryan. People. Well, like I feel like those characters are still in House of Cards, but they're the weakest characters possible. So how? I mean, how does Frank Underwood? always weasels way out of everything without with barely any consequence. I mean, I feel, he doesn't always get what he wants on the show. He doesn't always get what he wants, but... He's, he's good at damage control. He is good at damage control. That's that, I would say that. I also feel like the development of the characters within this show have been weak. You think so? I, I do think so. I think there's some good... I think Molly Parker's a good character. Remy Danton's a good character. Uh, Stamper. I feel like a lot of supporting casts develop well. I guess it depends. They pick them up and put them down. They don't always keep everyone going. So I guess it can be a little inconsistent. I, I think it's very inconsistent, but I guess when I think about character development, I think about Frank and Claire specifically. Right. You, you really expect to get more of Claire's background in this season. Um, I'm a little bit further ahead than you were, so I'm not going to give any spoilers for anything past mm-hmm. episode one. You so you do start to get a little bit more of Claire's background. I feel like Frank's background is very disjointed, and you start to get a little bit more of a picture in this. But I think what makes it even more difficult to kind of understand where he comes from, understand him as a character, is that he's maybe the least relatable character I've ever watched on TV. I mean, that makes sense, too, but at the end of the day, he's a president. He's a sociopath. Yes, yeah. The uh, the crimes he commits, I'll leave it at that, are uh, really interesting. I, I think we, we, he's we can kind of, spoil that. He's he murders somebody. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and he di- indirectly murders another person, right? Yeah, I mean, Peter Russo in the first season basically kills himself because Frank Underwood puts him in a position where he's going to like have. I, I guess I think people were really intrigued when they killed Zoe because that's like a Game of Thrones move. Right. People respect, oh, you killed a main character. Oh, where are you going with this? That's really interesting. I don't know the background on the Zoe Barnes, Kamara murder in episode one of season two. I feel like that was really a moment to try to get people like reacting to it on Twitter. Like, I know that sounds weird, I mean, but it was... Maybe, but she was such a good and important yeah. part of the first season that it seemed like it was very calculated. I don't think Absolutely. they would just do that. Thinking about this show and things that I think can make it better, as I've gotten through season four, I think this is maybe the best season since season one. That's so great I think hear. they're moving in a really solid direction. I think maybe what also helps is that the political climate in real life nowadays is almost more absurd than what's going on in the show so uh, i and actually have similar time time frames right yeah so it, i mean the uh, primary cycle in, in the show and in real life yeah absolutely so that that's definitely adds a level of of, of interest i i don't think i'm ever going to be in on this show again I, i'll watch it probably to, probably more to hate watch than anything but <laughs> it, it is drawing me back in so maybe maybe there's some promise like you said i, I haven't watched as much of season four as you but i actually like that they slowed this down mm-hmm. initially i Vice President, President, right? United Nations. He rose very quickly. Yeah, they slowed it down. They made it more realistic. I mean, he's fighting to get reelected. You know, right. for a really powerful guy, his own party doesn't even want him to be president anymore. They right. didn't want him to run at all. I really like that. They make it's not like it's a cakewalk for him. 
and he's kind of the poster boy for that uh, bad boy protagonist on TV that we see a lot right now. Right. Especially now Walter White's gone. So an interesting note, this is showrunner Bo Willeman's last season, and it's going to be passed on to uh, Melissa James Gibson and Frank... Pugliese, I believe is Yeah, they were the, the senior writers right. until they got promoted. That was another thing I didn't like, was they already announced season five was coming before season four aired. You right. couldn't have waited one week. People were going to binge watch it in a weekend. I mean, the, right. the big fans. But what that does for me is it take, that takes the suspense completely out of it. Right. That he's going to have his inedible collapse, his decline. They got another season to go. Well, probably not happening yet. I don't know. Just I, As soon as I knew season five was coming, I had no rapid desire to watch a show as soon as possible. I was like, mm-hmm. get to it, and I have another year, and then it comes, more of it comes out. So I'm not, I wasn't super invested as I thought I was. I almost wonder if Netflix would ever consider going in the direction with this show where they actually show the downfall of Frank Underwood while they're actually showing the uprising of another similar character. And with the show. Right. And like like to, a, to a Homeland move. Kind of yeah, thing. exactly. I think that that might help me feel like it's not all about the Underwoods all the time. That's a good point. I mean, at the same time, I think the original House of Cards kind of ended after three seasons, so they're probably not thinking about extending this too much longer. Well, they've already gotten farther bigger in scope than that. So why don't we talk about Better Call Saul, Dave? What what do you want to talk about with this? Yeah, so Better Call Saul, we've seen now, well, by the time you guys hear this, will be four episodes are out from season two. And Better Call Saul is very very unique because it's a sister show to a critically acclaimed show, Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. and Better Call Saul itself is already critically acclaimed. No other show really can say that. And it's not a straight-up prequel like everyone thought. Everyone's like, oh, of course they'll make more Breaking Bad. That's just a cash grab. Mm-hmm. Similar to how they were making Fargo. That's what everyone set out. You're just connecting it to connect to it because you know people might watch it. But Vince Gilligan and Peter Goud, the creators and showrunners for Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are excellent and Better Call Saul is paced really really well and obviously written really really well and Bob Odenkirk delivers a great performance as who will eventually become Saul Goodman Jim, he's now Jimmy McGill he's really good yeah so in case you don't know what Better Call Saul is just a quick update basically you lived under a rock Breaking Bad happened and you should watch that. Better Call Saul, like Dave said, is a sequel. It follows around basically uh, Jimmy McGill, who becomes Saul Goodman, who's in Breaking Bad. Aspiring lawyer. Right. Kind of a, a skeezy, weaselly type guy. Right. And basically how he rises to be the person he becomes on Breaking Bad. It has uh, Jonathan Banks reprising his role as Mike. Mike um, Ermin Trout. Ermin Trout. And it has Michael McKean in it, too. Mike, yeah. Who plays brother. uh, Jimmy's brother. And I thought I think that their chemistry on screen is fantastic. Yeah, well, they're both, they're both really good. Michael yeah. McKean's obviously a really good actor, but the relationship between the two brothers and how tenuous at least is done really well. Yeah, and, and the up and down of that relationship it was definitely interesting to follow. One of the biggest criticisms I've heard about this show is that compared to Breaking Bad, there's not as much action. I totally disagree with that because like you said it's it's a sequel show it's it's a sister show it's not breaking bad and no. it never was going to be breaking it's not bad. about selling drugs it's not about making meth There's and no jesse pigman as of now yelling bitch all the time so it's different yeah we saw tuco salamanca briefly in mm-hmm. season one but it's a little different and eventually you're gonna see jesse pinkman i would almost guarantee right being jesse pinkman and you'll oh, yeah, probably we'll, see walter white as well the thing that's so intriguing to me about better call saul is when they released season one they didn't know how well it was going to do. So they decided we can push the show quickly and get right back to where Breaking Bad is. When Saul comes to the picture in Breaking Bad in like season three or four, what they're doing now is 
pumping the brakes and taking their time getting there because they realize how well they're doing with the show. Also, we have the post-Breaking Bad scenes. With Cinnabon. With Cinnabon once he's in witness protection. They can also go that route as well and have parts of the show be post-Breaking Bad as well as some of it be prior. They really can do whatever they want with this. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I, I was kind of reading some articles to see where the uh, where Vince Gilligan wanted the show to go. And he says here, he can't keep this juggling act going. Our best way forward towards Saul is just to continue to put one brick up in the wall at a time and let the character tell us how quickly he should become Saul Goodman. Right. In one sense, we would like to hold Saul at bay as long as possible because when Jimmy stops being this wonderful, irrepressible character and calcifies into the seemingly soulless kind of rat bastard character of Saul, <laughs> it's going to be a tragedy. And yeah. that's that's the thing, is that you know that you're moving towards this huge moment where he stops being this like lovable character yeah. of Jimmy and he becomes that's a great rat. Par- that's a great parallel to Breaking Bad, where Walt starts off as this really likable, down-on-his-luck guy, and then mm-hmm. next thing you know, he's the monster of all monsters who you despise. With Saul, you already know he's going that way, no matter what happens. And I think building off of that is the idea that you see you see Jimmy McGill's blemishes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's you see, the, you see the cracks, right? I mean, when when you see Walter White, you see this really nice chemistry teacher, and then all of a sudden he's kicking out, um, you know, like kicking the ass of some kid who's making yeah. fun of his son, you right. know, and you're just like, whoa, like th- this guy had it in him. You see from the beginning, Jimmy is like this, but you still right. root for him because he's such a lovable character. I mean, yeah. he's just trying to get his mm-hmm. life together, and you know it's going to all fall apart. So the, I think the pacing point is great, and I also think just the way it goes in-depth on so many of the characters. I mean, yeah. uh, the, I think the Mike stuff is almost more interesting than the Jimmy stuff. Mike had more action-y stuff to do in Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. so people are naturally more intrigued with how he got to be where he is also because he's an old character right. and there's a lot more that had to have happened. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm just really intrigued to see how far they, they go with this before they go because you got to figure Giancarlo Esposito's Gus Fring from Breaking Bad will make an appearance yep. because of his relationship with Saul mm-hmm. and obviously Mike's as well. The show's written really well and paced really well. And it's, it's really just a show where they don't waste a frame with this. No. And you saw that with Breaking Bad where yeah. like they hint at things that mean something. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen quite as much of that piecing piecing the puzzle Pulling action all the threads together right. we haven't right. seen enough too much of that yet but they don't have to anyway no because it's, it's it's really just all about the characters right now kind of like you said they're slowing it down and kind of gonna let, let us see where it goes and then pull it all back together and we're probably it's probably gonna be amazing yeah. all right so why don't we finish up with some walking dead yeah a show i've been out on for a while yeah so the walking dead i would argue is as good as it's ever been hmm. it really just depends on what you're looking for the Walking Dead is obviously a ratings juggernaut. It destroys, and which is kind of... I still cannot believe that some days because it's a show about zombies mm-hmm. on TV. But at least people our age group, a lot of people got lost and gave up on the show around seasons four, seasons three and four, that, that time frame. That I was know, where I stopped watching. I mean, I know plenty of people that stopped watching then. And I think the problem, the problem with why people stop watching is you have to accept that The Walking Dead never was or ever will be about any kind of resolution. This is just a show about people, the people surviving with nothing. There's not going to be any talk about a cure. And I know they hinted at that with Eugene's character, but that's not happening. Mm -hmm. There's no cure. We're not going to get any backstory on how it happened. And this is just going to go on indefinitely until they end the show with, I'm assuming, a fate to black or something. So what are you watching then? Well, the reason I watch is because the characters are so good. And 
you want action, this is, I mean, this it's great. Sure. A lot and of action. I watch it. I also like watching because I think it's a school. It's a show about zombies, and it's done well. The production value of the show is, and I mean, you can see it. Those zombies, those are all people dressed up as zombies. It's it's made well. Oh, yeah, like the, the makeup and costume design, everything is definitely fantastic. And I don't think that's that's anything that can be disputed, really. But when, when I think about kind of what you were saying, that this is a show basically where you're just accepting that you're watching a show about people either running away or trying to kill zombies. Mm-hmm. How much of that can you watch? Well, it's really it's about the survival and how how they motivate themselves to keep going. And part of it requires you to be invested in the characters because most of the main characters that have been there a while are still there. But if once in a while, there's a gut punch moment and they take someone away. So they have Rick, Carol, yep, um, Daryl, Daryl, and, and um, the Asian guy, Glenn, Glenn, and his girlfriend, right? Now wife Maggie, w- wife. Who uh who did the ceremony? I guess I wasn't watching them. No. Uh, I don't. There wasn't much of a ceremony. They well, almost they almost maybe died. Maybe it was so. a zombie ze- a ceremony. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that to my imagination. <laughs> but I guess kind of like you said, there there's no hope in this show, which is which is fine. Not all shows have hope. I mean, I for most of these shows, I mean, Breaking Bad was a show that was probably always going to end in some way with Walt dying. Saul, I mean, Saul's going to go through his up and ups and downs, but I imagine he's not going to have a happy ending either. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they go to the post-Breaking Bad stuff. House of Cards, I almost guarantee, is going to end with Frank Underwood either being you know sent to jail forever or dying in some way. Yeah. So all these shows are, are going towards this bleak ending. But I guess with Walking Dead, like you said, it, it really is it has to be character-driven. The characters have to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think around that season three, four time was when the characters were at their weakest. The characters were at their weakest, and that was when the show had switched showrunners again after Frank Derenbout, who directed Shawshank Redemption after he was done with the show. The show, there, there was a weak point. That was the weak point of the show. That, that was Glenn Mazzara, right? As a showrunner? Which to Scott Gimple. After right. That. Well, na- right nowadays, Greg Nicotero has a lot of influence. He directs a lot of the episodes. Okay. And the current showrunner has been doing a lot of stuff more true to the comics, which is not necessarily good or bad, but... I think they're just deferring to the comics because they just want to go with stories that they know work. Right. But seasons three and four, the plot wasn't as interesting and the characters were at their weakest. There were some despicable, unlikable characters that people just love to hate on. Mm-hmm. And I can see why people weren't interested. This It was slow. Now the show has moved on beyond that slow prodding because that doesn't work when you know the show's so bleak. Do you think you need to watch all the previous episodes to catch up? That's a really good question. I don't think you necessarily you don't necessarily need to. You would appreciate the show more if you did. I would definitely recommend watching at least the last season and then watch this current season. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, the way that you're talking about it makes it actually sound like something I might be interested in. So uh, I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. Maybe we'll, we'll do like a recap at the end of one of the shows and I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you where I'm at with it. But There's a lot of good TV on there. It's tough to, yeah, it's tough to make time. Yeah, that, that's the thing is that the, in, in this golden age, quote unquote. Uh, no, no quotes. It's the golden age of television. Big it, TV. It's real. It, it, it is the, the best age. I, I totally agree. And that, that's the thing is that there's so much to watch. I mean, we talked about The Americans, a show neither one of us has watched, but we realized it's probably a fantastic and it's show. A show I know I'd like. Yeah, so <laughs> it's just it's just something where that's why I haven't watched Vinyl or Billions yet because I'm like I'm not going to make time for those shows yet. I'm going to figure out if they're actually worth my time. I haven't watched The Leftovers. Leftover season one wasn't good. Apparently, season two is amazing. Then they're ending with season three. Am I going to make time for this? I don't know. 
Well, I, David I, Lindelof. I recommend the leftovers, but it is it's something where you have to pick and choose. Like you really have, and you have to make a commitment to it. And there's just not enough hours in the day, so right, you're always gonna miss something. But I would highly recommend getting caught up on Mr. Robot. Yes, and Fargo, and I think in fairness, Mr. Robot's probably more of a priority because it's going back sooner. Yeah, and there's only ten episodes. Yeah, you you got another year before Fargo, so so take your time on that. But definitely take your time. You got a couple months, so. If you can track those down, definitely do. Any last thoughts on any of this TV? Well, yeah, HBO has the spring unlock. Right, um, right. End of next month, end of April. Sunday nights will be owned by HBO because you got Game of Game Thrones, Thrones Silicon Veep. Valley, and Veep. And I think Silicon Valley is the funniest show on TV, bar none. Oh, so, I mean, Silicon Valley is fantastic. So smart. I, I think Veep also, I mean, the writing on Veep is phenomenal. Yeah, I haven't watched Veep. I've heard of good things. I mean, Dreyfus has won a few Emmys. Yeah, the ending of last season. And Tony Hale won some Emmys, too. Yeah, well, Tony Hale from uh, Arrested Development. Busta. Days. Busta Bluth. Yeah, but the rating on the show is great, and they're actually, they actually have a really interesting premise for political purposes, where at the That's... end of last season, um, the, the vice president was in an election, and they actually tie with the electoral colleges. Oh, that's so funny. So it's about going forward and how they're going to kind of break that tie. It goes to Congress, I guess, and now they have to like get all these votes. So, interesting. Yeah, definitely an interesting premise to start the season. So, And it's only 30 minutes an episode. You can kind of binge it if, if you have a, a free weekend. Yeah, there's, what, 40 episodes, I think? I think 40 at this point. Silicon Valley is only 20. Yeah, definitely catch up on that. T.J. Miller from Deadpool and Cloverfield. He's yep. excellent in it. Come on, Johnny mm-hmm. is hilarious, and yeah. and uh, Martin Starr, who was a kid on Freaks and Geeks, is also really good in the show too. Yeah, no, it's that's... just really smart, really funny. Really, it's worth it's worth your time. Twenty episodes, absolutely. And I mean, Game of Thrones. If you're not watching, what are you really doing with your life? I mean, yeah, I, I know. So I had someone the other day text me. Yeah, Game of Thrones is trash. I'm like. What? No, it's it, first of all, it's not trash. You don't, don't have to like fantasy. I totally understand that. Did he tweet that. at you or text you? He texted me. You should just say it's, delete it's a personal your friend. <laughs> just say delete your number. <laughs> we'll we'll talk really in depth about Game of Thrones next month when we get closer to release. Absolutely. But in short, Game of Thrones is excellently written, crafted, and I don't know that that's the mo- uh, most consensus show. Yeah, you have to watch that when it comes out, or you feel like you're missing out. And you can't go on the internet until you watch it because you don't want stuff to be spoiled. And in today's age, people might not spoil it with the headline, but the picture for right. the article shows two characters, and then you assume you know what happens and it ruins it. Absolutely. I really hate that. They did that with The Walking Dead recently. <laughs> well, I think that that seems like a pretty good place to wrap this up. So, Dave, where, where can people find you if they want to hear some more of your hot takes this week? Right. Well, find the show at soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and follow the show on Twitter first at, at nostalgiapod. Nostalgia. If you want to follow me personally, follow me at Martin Swagger, M-I-R-T-I-N-S-W-A-G-R. Tweet at me or the pod with any ideas, criticism, or anything at all. Yeah, and tweet at me, Sheeny World Peace. Sheeny, the way it sounds, world without the O, and then peace, just the way that you know how to write it. And yeah, and send any feedback you got, good, bad, if you just want to be an asshole to us and, and tell us how terrible we are, we'll, we even take that at this point. So, And, and, and if you like the show, please share it with some like-minded folks. That would be much appreciated. Absolutely. And, and feel free to start a conversation with us. We want to make this as interactive as possible moving forward. And we'll be hopefully making some, some steps to social media to do that. But in the meantime, this is Patrick Sheehan and Dave Martin Swagger signing off. <laughs>